Well, it's good to see you again, uh, and I'm really honored today to preach the first annual Tall People's Memorial Sympathy Sermon, taking as our text Isaiah 28, verse 20, for the bed is too short to stretch oneself on. So that will be our text for today. Going to name this one after Bill Hull, I think. So he actually gave me an amen at the 730. So I'm not going to, in fact, preach that sermon, though I love that passage about the bed being too short, and there's probably something to be learned from that. Uh, Instead, I'm going to start with a confession, uh, not a formal one that you need to absolve me of, I hope. But uh, so uh, Ruth and I got our wires crossed, uh, and I crossed the wires, not Ruth. And so the gospel we heard proclaimed by Deacon Jim is not the one I've written a sermon for. But but no, I'm not going to sit down. I'm going to preach anyway, but I'm going to read another gospel reading. So um, anyway, this is this is you're on the ACNA lectionary. We still use the Revised Common Lectionary at Epiphany until Advent 1. And so this is one of those moments where I said to Ruth, oh, maybe we could use the uh, ACNA lectionary uh, for the gospel on this Sunday. And she said, OK, and then I'm actually not preaching at Epiphany tonight. So I proceeded to write a sermon based on the ACNA lectionary, but I had already told her to change it. Anyway, we're still in Luke chapter 13, but this is the gospel reading that I have, in fact, written a sermon for. Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you came from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some are first who will be last. So the good news is you're here for the double reading of the gospel Sunday, but this is the one I'll preach on. Now, I'm picking up from last week's gospel reading and sermon about Jesus saying there will be division in the church. And that he will bring that division, that the gospel brings division. Remember that from last week. And so in light of Jesus' teaching that he and the gospel bring division, it's no wonder then that someone would ask Jesus, will those who are saved be few? I mean, if you're going to tell people that the gospel is divisive, it seems to be a logical question to follow. Then like, if the gospel is divisive, then how many people will be saved? Many or few? And turns out... Now that Jesus has pointed himself towards Jerusalem, remember we mentioned that last week, that we read the Gospels in light of the impending crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, and also the eschatological aspect. Here, the first verse, um, he went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying towards Jerusalem. He's pointing himself, he's pointing us towards his crucifixion, that this theme of asking about who will be saved becomes a little more commonplace in the remainder of the Gospel of Luke. So we have today's question. Lord, will those who are saved be few? In chapter 18, verse 26, um, someone will ask, who can be saved? 
right? So this becomes a question. This becomes a, um, a concern that these, uh, the followers of Jesus have. And of course, I think it's because if the gospel brings division, then it's worth saying, well, who exactly then is going to be saved as a result of this divisive gospel? But perhaps even more importantly, is this not still a, revel- a relevant question today? I mean, should we not be asking, Lord, are those who are going to be saved be few? Right. As we labor in the vineyards and often don't see a lot of fruit for that, it's it's okay for us to ask the kind of question that Jesus's initial followers asked. Lord, are those who are saved going to be few? I mean, who can be saved? So this seems to remain a relevant question for us today and therefore worth our considering it. The answer, of course, comes from the gospel reading itself. That's the the nature of Jesus's ministry. He often provides the answer. It's not always clear. Sometimes it's cryptic and parable form. But but today, Jesus seems to provide a fairly decently clear answer to this question. And the answer is this. Many will seek to be saved, but few will be able in the end to be saved. So, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Many will seek, few will find. Now, in the next, cha- in the next chapter, chapter uh, 14, verse 25, we're reminded again that Jesus is being followed by great crowds. And I mentioned last week, there's crowds following Jesus who are probably curious as to who he is. Right? Maybe the original groupies, if you will. Like, they've heard about this man named Jesus. They, they might know he's from Bethlehem with human parents, and they're curious about what he's doing, so they're following, they're following him. Then there's also the disciples, those who are choosing to follow Jesus more intently. They, they know that Jesus is the Christ. So, for example, the feast of Bartholomew, or as we like to think of him in our home by his other name, Nathaniel, because our son Nathaniel is named after him, his feast day yesterday, right? Nathaniel was the one who said, there is the man in whom there is no guile. Nathaniel knew that Jesus was the Christ immediately. And so there's the great crowd following him because they're curious. And then there's the, the disciples who are following him. Well, in the next chapter, we're reminded about this great crowd, crowd, and then it makes us think about, wait a second, many seek, but few are saved. So of this great crowd that's following Jesus, few of them in the end are actually going to be saved if we take Jesus's words seriously. Again, today's reading, verse 24, though many strive to be saved, Few enter through the narrow door, Jesus says. So again, many are striving, but few are actually entering through this door. I like the way one commentator uh, put it that I read this week. Uh, He or she writes, despite God's universal saving will, despite the fact that God wants to save everyone, salvation should not be taken for granted. Right. So though Jesus desires for all people to come to a saving knowledge of him, salvation should not be taken for granted because we're told here that few actually will enter through the narrow door. So as we ask the question, as it's asked in the gospel, as we ask the question today, you know, how many will be saved or those who are saved be few? um, It's still a relevant question. The answer seems to be, well, many are striving after him, but few in the end will actually be saved. So that's the first thing Jesus tells us in response to the question. Yep, many are looking. Few will actually make it through the door. 
But let me then turn to verses 25 to 27, because that feels disconcerting to me. Right? If people are striving after Jesus, then why wouldn't many people make it through the door or to change the image? Why is the door narrow? Why isn't the door wide? If there's many people striving after Jesus, why not have a wide door that many people can make it through? But verses 25 through 27 of the reading that I read today, we notice that all of this is a God thing, right? This is all a God thing, not an us thing. In fact, we read that it's the master of the house, that is Jesus, who locks the door from the inside. And it is the Lord then who opens the door. Again, the text says this, when once the master of the house, that's Jesus, has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us and he will answer you. I do not know where you've come from. Then you'll begin to say, but we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he's going to say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Think about it. This is a conversation they're having through the door. Jesus has closed the door. He's locked the door from the inside. Those are the best locks, right? The ones that lock from the inside. Jesus has locked the door, but let us in. Why? Well, we ate and drank with you and you've taught in our streets, but I don't know where you've come from. No, but seriously, like, let us in. No, I don't know where you've come from. The issue seems to be that though those folks who are knocking know the Lord, right? They, they know he's the Lord. Lord, open to us. They know him. They have not apparently acknowledged him in a way that turns their knowing of him into some sort of a saving acknowledgement. Twice, Jesus says, once in verse 25, once in verse 27, I do not know where you come from. Right? So there's this general knowledge of each other, but he doesn't know where they've come from. How true is this in our own lives? I mean, how many people do we know in a general sense? Right. So last night, a friend of ours turned 40, uh, was having a get together last night. And right at the end, a couple came up and he introduced himself. Now, I could tell they both looked familiar to me. Right. They both looked familiar. But he came up and he introduced himself. And as soon as I heard his name, I realized, oh, Hakeem, we've played basketball together. I know. That's right. You're wondering. Father Greg plays basketball. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I play basketball. So, um, <laughs> So we played basketball together, and, and then he goes, oh, and this is my wife, Z. And I thought, oh, my goodness, Z, you're the chair of the art department at Biola. We met last year in a one-on-one meeting because I was chairing a committee that she had to ask questions of. And she's like, oh, I do remember that. So, again, like I, I knew them. They looked familiar. But until that reintroduction, I couldn't even place them. I, I didn't know that in one sense she's actually my colleague at Biola, right, which is just big enough of a university to kind of know people generally, but not to know everyone well. And so you have those examples in your own life that that you know people, but you don't know where they've come from. You don't know them well. And so the issue seems to be exactly that with these people who are knocking at the door. Jesus hasn't locked it just to be contrarian. Jesus isn't a teenager who locked the door to play games on his friends. No, Jesus locked the door because he says, yeah, I mean, like we know each other in that vague sense, but you just keep following me. You haven't acknowledged who I am. 
So let me extend this image out a little further and say, inside the house with Jesus are his disciples. Those who have acknowledged him, the the close followers of Jesus, the few. They're inside the house. It's the many. It's the great crowd that's outside the house knocking on the door. But it's still worth asking, what is Jesus getting at here? Is not the gospel for everyone? Jesus wants everyone to come to a saving knowledge of him. So what's Jesus getting at by shutting the door and keeping people out? That seems cruel, right? It seems unkind, uncharitable, not like the loving God at all. But in fact, that's what's happening. So the answer, I think, if we want to say what's Jesus getting at here is helpfully illustrated, I think, in the reading from Hebrews today. The very first part of the Hebrews reading, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. We are a couple generations out now from Jesus. The letter to the Hebrews is written to the first or even the second generation of Christians who have established themselves. And so when it says, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, this isn't the immediate crowd of people who follow Jesus. We're now downstream quite a bit. The church has established itself. And so the concern is that there are, seem to be people who, are, people who are falling away. So literally, see to it that no one falls behind. Make sure that no one falls away from. Make sure no one fails in response to the grace being offered by God. Make sure no one falls behind and drifts away from what? The church, from Jesus. That's what this section of Hebrews cares about. It cares that those who have obtained the grace of God retain the grace of God. And the example given for us is Esau. Now we saw in verse uh, chapter 11, rather, that there's the examples, right, of people from the history of the Bible and the early church. And now we have this example of Esau. Now Esau is not the greatest person in the scripture. So all of a sudden Esau is being held up as an example. So as you can imagine, it might not be a great one. But we're reminded of Esau selling of his birthright. And by selling his birthright, he sold off his blessing. And what did Esau do? Regretted it. Regretted it so much that he could not repent. That is, when he comes to regret that he has sold his birthright and the blessing that comes with it, it's too late to repent. It's too late for Esau to change his mind. Right? If you... If you decide to sell your house and you enter into a contract and the house goes into escrow and you've signed the paperwork, right? You, you, it's now too late. You can't keep the house. There's a day when the house is no longer yours. You're now actually obligated to move out of it. And so though Esau realizes, no, I shouldn't have done that. It's too late to change his mind. He can't get the birthright back. Birthright back. He can't get that blessing back. That is, he can't undo the consequences of his decision. And so the text here seems to be illustrating for us what's happening in the gospel, that there's all kinds of people who are following Jesus around because they're curious about him. They know him superficially. They probably aren't thinking of him as the Messiah necessarily. But guess what? There's going to come a day when it's too late There's a day that's too late to realize who Jesus is. And and there's there's illustrations of this, right? There's the the be ready language. There's the the virgins with the lamps burning and having enough oil. 
waiting for the bridegroom to come that serves as an image of Jesus. There's, there's even the thief on the cross who kind of at the penultimate moment gets into paradise with Jesus, whereas the other thief on the cross is, a, is moments late, as he will realize. But at that point, like he saw, it's too late to repent. He can't do anything about it. Does something suggest it matters what choices we make now? In the words of the, of the reading from Hebrews, we need to come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And in coming to Jesus, it's in recognizing who he is. It is understanding that he is the Messiah. It is accepting him as the Savior. Not because he's interesting. Not because what he says might be true. Because there's going to come a day and a time when Jesus goes into the house, if you will, and will lock the door from the inside, and he's not going to let people in anymore. So why don't people come to faith? Are there only going to be a few who are saved? Yes, that's right. And it's not because God is not gracious and does not invite everyone into the divine embrace, into a saving relationship with him. But it's because, like in the Gospels, there's a great crowd interested in him, but few who are willing to know him and acknowledge him. So we ask ourselves today, as we should all the time when we are faced with the truth of the word of God, which is, where are we at? How are we responding to this Jesus? How are we responding to his invitation? Not just to follow him around. We're not groupies. This isn't Jesus's farewell tour and we just happen to have enough money to see some shows. No, instead, this is the savior of the world presenting a life and death decision to his people. So let us not find ourselves like Esau, realizing a moment too late that, and then we can't repent. But instead, again, in the words of Hebrews, let us not refuse him who is speaking to us. Let us hear the word and the words of God and you and our ears calling us over and over again into relationship with him. And let us respond to those words and be in relationship with Jesus the Christ, both um, in our personal lives, but also by way of the church and the sacraments. Because ultimately, this is actually isn't about me. Again, Jesus is the one who opens the door. This is not about Father Greg Peters making a decision. This is about Jesus inviting me. He is the one who acts. I am the one who responds. So let us not mistake that God is calling us each and every day afresh and anew. Let us see to it that we do not fail to obtain the grace of God. Let us make sure that we stay active missionally in our communities and through the church so that others can obtain the grace of God. So if there's only going to be a few who are saved, may the Lord grant us knowledge and blessing that we are among those few. And let us follow Jesus well, for he calls us. And in our response, again, let us respond to his words. Let us not just be those who follow Jesus, but those who acknowledge him as well. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.